And on today's morning show, we are talking sports, but sports through a really interesting lens, or sports in America, especially big-time team sports, uh, and looking at the way in which it relates to the world of religion. It's a fascinating brand-new book called Passion Plays, How Religion Shaped Sports in America. And in this book, the author, Randall Balmer, examines uh, the emergence of baseball and football and hockey and uh, basketball and uh, the story of how each of those team sports took hold of the American public in various ways and perhaps played different roles in the the shaping of our emerging nation. But uh, along the way, uh, uh, Professor Balmer also draws some interesting parallels between uh, the world of competitive sports and and, uh, the world of religion and examines some of the ways in which uh, devotion to sports and to sports teams, in a sense, satisfies a a similar kind of hunger in in many people. Uh, It's an intriguing notion, which uh, he uh, examines in, in really interesting fashion. The book is published uh, by the University of North Carolina Press, their division called Ferris and Ferris. Again, it's titled Passion Plays, How Religion Shaped Sports in America, North America. The author, Randall Balmer, has written extensively on matters related to religion and American culture. He holds the John Phillips Chair in Religion at Dartmouth College. Randall Balmer, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Greg, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk with you uh, about this. Um, You do make mention at some point uh, uh, in in the book that you are somebody who comes to this topic uh, in a couple of different ways, as a big fan of sports and as someone who has played a lot of sports as well. Just give us a little bit of background in terms of your own connection to the world of sports, uh, but then specifically what... uh, sort of uh, sparked your interest in uh, exploring the topic in this way? <laughs> well, I've been a sports fan, fan since I was a, a child, really all the way back in Minnesota, and then uh, primarily in Michigan. That's when I kind of came into my own as a sports fan. When uh, we lived in Michigan in the middle of the 1960s, you get a sense of how, how old I am, how long I've been around. <laughs> and uh, I, I've just maintained sports loyalties like uh, other folks uh, have over the years and played it whenever I can. Uh, not as well as I would like, of course, but uh, I, I enjoy uh, athletic ac- activity as well. But the real catalyst, the immediate catalyst for my writing this book was my introduction to sports radio early in the 1990s. I was teaching at Columbia University at the time, and this is when uh, WNBC became WFAN, and it became a sports talk station, and I began to listen in. First of all, I was just aghast. I was incredulous that a host could keep a conversation going for hours and hours over whether or not Joe Torre should have lifted the starting pitcher with two outs in the bottom of the sixth inning. And uh, as I kind of got drawn into it, I realized that there was a great deal of passion associated with sports and sports fandom, and I wanted to explore it a bit further. In fact, uh, in the prologue to the book, you call it a peculiar passion that you were wanting <laughs> to sort of learn more more about. Uh, and 
and I guess what you are also suggesting in the book is that the passion that you, in a sense, witnessed or experienced when you first turned on uh, that sports radio station, it was a passion that reminded you of the passion that one finds at least in in certain arenas uh, in the religious world. Tell us more about that specific parallel of passions. Well, I suppose I was particularly attuned to it because much of my research is uh, centered around evangelicalism, and which of course includes Pentecostals and other folks who tend to be quite enthusiastic in their worship. And I just found it interesting that uh, we talk about sports fans and religious fanatics, and the two terms are not all that uh, dissimilar in many ways, and the behavior, in fact, in many instances is not all that dissimilar. And then you have other parallels, uh, the whole idea of sacred space, whether it's a cathedral in religion or the holy city of Mecca for Muslims or Fenway Park or Lambeau Field, Uh, as a kind of sacred space for sports fans. You have a kind of liturgy or a a ritual surrounding football games in particular uh, with the national anthem. And then, of course, you've got the the players coming onto the field with smoke and fire and all sorts of pyrotechnics. And you have uh, uh, incense in a liturgical procession as the priest and the acolytes and the choir move into the sanctuary for the services. And of course, the parallel also is with sainthood. You have saints within the Catholic Church, within the Orthodox tradition, and you also have saints in sports, and we find them in the Hall of Fame. So those those connections were immediately of interest to me. And then, uh, as you know, I tried to drill down a little bit deeper into the origins and the specific symbolism behind uh, each of the major team sports in North America. Let's talk about one important backdrop to all of this, and that is uh, the decline in terms of, of <laughs> boy, it's, it's hard to kind of characterize this. I mean, when we're talking about, in a sense, how religious people are or how devout they are, I mean, you, you, you share with us, in a sense, kind of contrasting statistics that the United States remains uh, one of the most religious nations on earth, at least in, in some senses of that word. And yet, when it comes to the level of devotion to religion, uh, that is on the decline, particularly among white males. Tell us more about that and maybe a little bit about the way in which such a thing can and is measured, uh, particularly in the way that you're talking about this topic. Well, I'm always a little bit suspicious of survey data and those sorts of numbers. But nevertheless, uh, any even cursory look at the notion of religious affiliation over the last several decades has, has shown that the number of people who claim a religious affiliation or go to religious worship on a regular basis has declined, uh, in fact, quite dramatically over the last two or three decades, while the number of so-called nuns, that is N-O-N-E-S, none of the above, or no religious affiliation, has climbed. I think the most recent figure was uh, it's up to 23 or 20, even 28 percent of the population 
which in the United States is, is pretty much unheard of because we are, as you said, one of the most religious nations in the world. And at the same time, and you could probably speak this, in fact, better than I, we have this uh, increased passion and uh, fidelity to sports and sports teams, uh, you know, even fantasy leagues. is not really something I understand very much, but uh, that seems to be another index of how passionate we Americans have become about sports. So I guess one of the things you are suggesting is when we see the one number swinging upward while the other number swings downward, I mean, that in and of itself does not demonstrate a, a causal link, and yet there is it's probably more than a coincidence that we should be seeing both of those phenomena essentially at the same time. I think that's right. It's a, there's a correlation, at least, uh, even if there's not a causation, as you said, uh, certainly. And I also want to say that this is in part what was happening in the 19th century when these major team sports were being developed. That is to say, uh, historians have called, uh, come to, to talk about the 19th century as an era of the feminization of American culture, and in particular, American religion. That is to say, men were increasingly working outside the home. They were no longer working on the farms and in subsistence living as much as they were previously. They were working instead in the textile mills or the factories or in some sedentary office job. And there was a real concern on the part of uh, many people, both in Britain and the United States, that American males in particular were becoming not only unchurched and irreligious, but they were also becoming uh, too sedentary. Uh, they were not getting outdoors enough. They were not getting enough exercise. And so a whole movement uh, emerged that historians call muscular Christianity. And muscular Christianity, in, in turn, tried to yoke Christianity with athleticism. And that, in turn, is what uh, really propelled or animated the emergence of these team sports in, in North America. Hmm. One other thing I want to explore before we dig into these four sports uh, that you examine in, in great detail in your, in your book, uh, at least to some extent, what we are talking about uh, is this phenomenon as it has particularly played out amongst white males. And uh, I, I was actually a little surprised to, 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 to read that, I, I guess because I hadn't really stopped to think about it. And, and I'm, I'm not disputing uh, the point that you are making, that when it comes to ferocious passion about uh, these, these kind of sports and following teams and allegiance to teams and so on, that, that we probably really do see that, especially among white males. But I was just thinking if, if I, the last time I went to a Packer game, for instance, you know, and if I surveyed the stands, you know, I, I don't know that I'm seeing mostly white male faces there, uh, versus, versus other, uh, aspects of, of the general population. Can we just get a little clarification about how much we are, in fact, talking about something that happens with white males more so than other parts of the, of the, of the population? And also, if that distinction is just as clear as it used to be, or, or is this phenomenon, in a sense, spreading amongst other groups as well? 
Yeah, that's really a good question. And, uh, you know, again, I don't have uh, hard, <laughs> concrete data on this. Uh, but uh, other than, as you said, looking at the stands and uh, just getting a sense of you know who's really there, who's cheering, uh, also who's calling in to talk radio. And, and it's, it's pretty hard to tell, certainly, in many cases, who exactly is, is on the other end of the line. But at least my impression is that white males are really quite passionate about this. And, and what I try to argue in the book is that the reason for this is that athletics or sports, particularly team sports, provides an alternate universe that is it is the quintessential level playing field of course these fields are in fact level but uh, i also argue that sports at least at the collegiate and the professional professional levels may come as close as anything in our society to a perfect meritocracy that is to say unless you are talented you're not going to play at least at the higher the highest competitive levels. And so there's an attraction for that, particularly for white males, many of whom perceive the larger world. And I want to emphasize this is perception, not necessarily reality. They perceive the larger world as somehow stacked against them, somehow being unfair. And the ability to move into this alternate universe where something is either fair or it's foul it's inbounds or it's out of bounds. The, li- the fields themselves are defined by straight lines and right angles. And what do we say when a team wins? They won fair and square. And I think there's an attraction there, especially for white males who feel as though the larger society is somehow uh, not fair any longer, that they have to... Uh, uh, labor against uh, great odds and, and, and prejudice in order to make their way to society. And again, I want to emphasize that's a perception, I think, more than reality, but I think a lot of uh, white males feel that. Interesting. Yeah, you write at one point about uh, these these sorts of white males feeling beleaguered that the world isn't fair. You write, amid such uncertainty, sports, which bears at least a family resemblance to religion, provides a respite, an alternative universe to a world that seems unfair and out of balance. Sports, especially at the collegiate and professional level, may offer the closest thing we have to a meritocracy. You know, it's kind of interesting, ironic, I suppose, and you talk about a lot of paradoxes in your book, and I suppose another one is that, uh, in a sense, for African Americans, for instance, following Major League Baseball, uh, with the emergence of Jackie Robinson and other blacks, uh, had to be gratified at the thought of seeing something play out on the field that uh, they would be so happy to see play out in their own daily lives or or, or work lives. Uh, I mean, it was just a beginning, and of course, the beginning of something of, of large tidal shifts uh, that by no means have, have are complete, but but it's kind of interesting to think about when we are in the stands observing a game, what that game means to us when we compare that game and how it is played to how we live our lives in a more complicated world. No, that's a great point, Greg, and uh, I, I, I entirely agree with you. I think sports in many ways provides a way of asserting 
oneself or one's tribe, uh, and I don't mean that term in a pejorative way, that is uh, uh, one's people as being American. So, for example, with football, football was developed really by Protestants, that is by the sons, nephews, and brothers of Union Army soldiers in the uh, schools of the Northeast uh, after the Civil War. And one of football's great accomplishments was, as I say in the book, to overcome what I call the three R's, that is region, religion, and race. But we're talking about religion. And so as football began to be played at places like Boston College and Fordham University, and or Marquette for that matter, or um, uh, particularly the University of Notre Dame, it allowed Catholics to claim their place in American society, to take a great deal of satisfaction that they were beating the Protestants at their own game. And I have uh, quite a few quotes in the, in the football chapter about uh, Notre Dame fans in particular seeing themselves and, and, and other Catholics as finally being accepted into American society as they begin to play and excel at the game of football. For Jews as well, Hank Greenberg of the Detroit Tigers, Sandy Koufax of the Los Angeles Dodgers, are very important figures for Jewish Americans because, again, they have one of their own who is excelling at this quintessentially American game. Mm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Randall Balmer about his newest book, which is called Passion Plays, How Religion Shaped Sports in North America. One of the things that you talk about uh, in terms of some of the paradoxes that you uh, explore in your book is that this fascination uh, with team sports, this devotion to team sports, uh, is in a sense in contradistinction to uh, that kind of rugged individualism that is so much a part of the uh, American uh, sort of landscape and, and the way in which many people tend to kind of think of themselves and particularly a certain sort of white male that we were talking about uh, earlier. Talk more about this interesting paradox and, and, and what you think is behind it. Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're right. The, the part of the mythology of uh, American identity is that uh, you have this rugged individualism. And yet team sports are, are inordinately popular, I think probably in part, because that says something about our need for community, uh, whether it's a, a teammate and you see the sort of camaraderie that uh, at least successful teams <laughs> demonstrate uh, on, the, on the field or even off the field for that matter, but also the, the fandom, uh, finding uh, commonalities. Uh, I have a friend here in town who talks about filling up his tank with gas and this uh, uh, pickup truck rolls up nearby and he sees a new new england patriots bumper sticker all of a sudden he has something to talk with to a person who probably has very few other similar interests probably a different socioeconomic category uh, probably different political views but at least they can talk about football and have that sort of uh, community even though they have uh, differences in other ways so I think uh, that is a, an important element of sports, finding a sense of uh, belonging, a sense of community, even with people who are different from yourself. Hmm. 
I think a lot of people will enjoy, as I did, the way in which you take us through the history of uh, these four major team sports here in America. Uh, that is baseball, football, hockey, and, and, and basketball. And, of course, there are other team sports that are, that are played here, but a lot of the phenomenon that you are exploring plays out maybe most vividly, most dramatically uh, in these four sports. And uh, I really love the, time, the way that you take time to talk about the emergence of baseball here in the United States and the myth that has grown up around one Abner Doubleday. Uh, help us understand why the story of Abner Doubleday uh, essentially creating the thing we call baseball, why that story was concocted, by whom and when, and, and especially why. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, the, the best uh, historical evidence we have about baseball is that the real origins probably are some of these uh, British and uh, European games. Uh, rounders, for example, there are certainly uh, um, elements of cricket uh, in baseball, and stool ball, uh, the Dutch were playing stool ball and so forth. And the earliest evidence of baseball that we have is in um, Pittsfield, Massachusetts in 1791. There was a town ordinance that uh, prohibited the playing of baseball near the meeting house because the glass, the windows were being broken so frequently. But one of the uh, early uh, pioneers of baseball Albert Spaulding, of the Spaulding Sporting Goods family, by the way, he was uh, obsessed with the idea that baseball was really an American game. It was purely an American invention. And he helped to set up something called the Mills Commission, named after the man who headed the commission, who was a former president of the National League. And the, the charge of the Mills, Mills Commission was to find out the real origins of baseball. So they began putting out the word that they wanted stories, they wanted um, evidence for how baseball was invented here in America because they were that was the, the conclusion that they were looking for. And uh, a traveling businessman by the name of Abner Graves was traveling through Toledo, Ohio. He read this notice about wanting to find about the origins of baseball. And he submitted this story about Abner Doubleday having invented the game in Cooperstown, New York in 1839. And then the game was uh, played shortly thereafter in a nearby field. Well, this is the story that came into the Mills Commission. And uh, this is the story that they went with, even though Mills himself had some serious reservations about the veracity of this story. Nevertheless, they published this as the true origin origin narrative for baseball. However, turns out that Abner Doubleday was a cadet at West Point in 1839. He wasn't anywhere near Cooperstown, New York. He never, in the course of his 70-plus years, claimed credit for the invention of baseball. And Abner Graves, who supposedly witnessed this invention of, ba of baseball, was five years or would have been five years old at the time. So the story doesn't hold up, but it's an important story, I think, in many ways, because it adds to the mythology of baseball. And myths are very important in religion as well. Uh, the story I compare it to is the 
creation narratives in the book of Genesis. Now, again, uh, I mean, I, I, some people very feel very strongly about this, but I'm pretty safe in saying, I think, that the creation stories were never intended to be read as history. They are, in fact, stories from the ancient world that tell us something important about the nature of God, the nature of humanity, the nature of the created order. And stories are very, very powerful. In the case of baseball, it emphasized the rural origins of this game or the supposed rural origins of the game. And I think one of the characteristics of baseball is that it tries to stand against the culture in the sense that baseball was really developed during the Industrial Revolution when you had the emergence of all these factories and workplaces and so forth. But baseball was also played in the cities, New York City in particular, but others as well. And so you have, even to this day, this odd situation where you see these uh, beautiful grassy fields in the midst of these concrete canyons with all these uh, office complexes. And one of the photographs that I use in the book shows a stadium in Boston with the uh, smoke smokestacks of the Industrial Revolution in the background. And baseball is really standing against industrialism. And one of the ways they do that is that baseball rejects the icon of industrialism, which was the clock. It's the only major sport that is not governed by the clock. So baseball is saying, we reject the tyranny of time. We want to hearken back to an earlier age when the world was rural uh, and verdant with these grassy fields, and we're not going to subject ourselves to uh, these time limits. We're going to let uh, time unspool as leisurely as we choose and uh, and enjoy it. Hmm. So uh, these these stories are important, I think. Absolutely. And they inspire a whole host of people, including the great poet Walt Whitman. And uh, you share this from Mr. Whitman. In our sundown perambulations of late through the outer parts of Brooklyn, we have observed several parties of youngsters playing bass, a certain game of ball. The game of ball is glorious. I see great things in baseball. It is our game, the American game. Baseball will take people out of doors, fill them with oxygen, give them a larger physical stoicism, tend to relieve us from being a nervous, dyspeptic set, repair those losses, and be a blessing to us. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> it really is. I love that. <laughs> and when one thinks about uh, the, the kind of world that was already emerging when Walt Whitman wrote these words in, uh, in the late 1840s, uh, one can, can see how baseball would be seen as an important antidote for uh, some of the darker sides of this emerging industrial uh, revolution. You also talk in this book about how, uh, in your words, baseball provides a metaphor for the immigrant experience. I think you've already briefly touched on this, but just expand for a moment on uh, on how baseball is, uh, in, in a sense, an important platform or stage on which this plays out. Well, that's a great question, and, and one of the things we have to observe about baseball is that immigrants have always excelled at baseball. So in the 19th century, it was immigrants from places like Germany, 
in Italy or Scandinavia who were playing baseball. Uh, and of course, you had Jackie Robinson in 1847, uh, 1947 that uh, paved the way for uh, other outsiders, that, that is uh, African-Americans, to play Major League Baseball. And then more recently, you have uh, players from the Caribbean and even now Asia who are coming to America to play baseball. And so baseball is uh, a game where immigrants have prospered, but also the game itself really reflects the immigrant experience. That is to say that it's the only game where the defense controls the ball. And it's the object of the offensive player, that is the batter, to disrupt the defense's control of the ball. He's outnumbered nine to one. <laughs> in And uh, there's a defense that's malevolently configured to foil his efforts. And if he fails, nine, seven times out of ten, he'll probably go to the Hall of Fame. That's how difficult it is. So the batter, the immigrant, is looking out over into that vast field with only three islands of safety in that world. And of course, for the immigrant, as for the baseball player, the greatest triumph is to be able to return home. So it is a game that really captures the immigrant experience. And of course, 19th century was the time when immigrants really reshaped the whole character of, of the nation. We're speaking with Randall Balmer, and we're talking about his really interesting new book called Passion Plays, How Religion Shaped Sports in North America. He is examining uh, the four major team sports here in the United States in terms of at least those that, that play out ultimately on a professional level, baseball, football, hockey, and basketball. Uh, in the chapter called uh, A Great Moral Force, uh, you draw a parallel that, again, I had never stopped to think about between uh, the game of football and the harsh reality of war, and of especially <laughs> of war as it plays out on the classic battlefields of past wars. Um, tell us about all of the ways, or some of the ways in which, in which this has has been highlighted very specifically. I mean, that this is not an observation that you are making uh, in, in, in retrospect, but something uh, that has been understood for quite a long time by people who followed baseball in its early, or I should say football, in its early years. Yes, exactly. The, the, uh, the Football really was developed as a game uh, after the Civil War. And it is the game. It is a game that has to do with the conquest and the defense of territory. So you think about football. A football game as being, in some measure, a a sort of replication of the Battle of Gettysburg or the Battle of Antietam or Bull Run, Manassas, whatever it might be, because you're trying to take territory from your opponent and trying to defend your own territory, which is precisely what the the Civil War generals uh, were doing. But you think also about the the way we talk about football. Uh, the quarterback is often referred to as the field general, and he unleashes long bombs or bullet passes. Uh, we talk about trench warfare. That is the uh, offensive line versus the defensive line. 
lining up against each other in uh, in a warlike sort of stance. And uh, you know, pundits usually say that whoever controls the line of scrimmage will probably win the game. And uh, even the line of scrimmage has its uh, antecedents in war. Uh, Walter Camp, the father of American football, wanted to replace the rugby scrum with the line of scrimmage. So you would have these clear battle lines between these two forces rather than the chaos of a, of a rugby scrum. Uh, there, the other thing that uh, I, I noted is that as the techniques surrounding warfare have changed, that is the move from tank warfare to bombing and aerial warfare, and more recently with drones, of course, so too the strategies of football have changed. And I have statistics in there about uh, the number of passing yards in, say, the 1940s, as opposed to the uh, 2010s. Uh, and it's just dramatically different the way the tactics have now moved into the air with quarterbacks throwing the ball rather than relying on uh, a running the game. One of the um, early contributors to football was a, a man in Massachusetts named Lauren DeLand. And he was, uh, he saw his first football game and he was just entranced by this. He, he couldn't believe it. He said, this is war, this is military. And he was a military historian. He particularly studied the Napoleonic Wars. And he begins to devise all these uh, football plays for the Harvard team that were based specifically on various strategies that he had studied on the battlefield. So football is a game of war. And of course, uh, one of the consequences of that is the violence, which is actually scripted into the game of, of football, hmm. uh, unlike these other major sports. Uh, you know, hockey has its eruptions of violence, but uh, violence is actually scripted into the game of football. Right. It's so interesting to hear you or to read how you describe the uh, innovations made by Walter Camp, uh, sometimes called the father of American football, and the way in which he was trying to uh, transform the game, which in its early years here in America resembled what uh, you tell us sports historians refer to as mob games. <laughs> and this would, yep. we would probably scarcely recognize uh, these kind of games as, as football in, in the way that it's played now. But uh, it's probably important for us to kind of understand the, the roots of football which, because it helps us understand why football, when it was first played, was so greatly scrutinized and regarded uh, with such alarm by so many people. Yes. Well, and in fact, there were many deaths, a lot of fatalities in the early games of football, and it was really quite brutal as it was uh, as it was played. And so uh, Walter Camp tried to eliminate that, or at least reduce it, with the introduction of the line of scrimmage. His other innovation was to reduce the number of players on a team from 15 to 11. And he had to argue long and hard about that. Finally, the other schools agreed to do that. But... Um, this is a, 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 another general characteristic of the development of these team sports late in the 19th century is that they move from being mob games to being more regulated. And probably the best example of that 
would be La Crosse in Canada, which, of course, is the direct progenitor of hockey. A dentist in Montreal by the name of George Beers was fascinated with lacrosse, and he went out to see Native Americans who, of course, uh, had been playing the game for centuries. And he was also a Presbyterian, Beers was. And, of course, the, um, the tagline for Presbyterians is to do everything decently and in order. <laughs> and so he loved lacrosse, but he said this game needs to be made orderly. So he imposed uh, 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 limits on the field size, limiting on the number of players on each side, and this is one of the first transitions from mob game to more regulated behavior, and that, of course, uh, translated eventually onto the hockey rink. Hmm. One, one other quick point about football, when you talk about the innovations made by uh, Walter Camp, who... Uh, as we were talking earlier, came up with this whole notion of of a line of scrimmage. <laughs> let's put one team here, the other team there, and let's line up at a line of scrimmage and begin, you know, various downs and have a field that's delineated and so on. I mean, trying to bring order into chaos. But you tell us, Camp's innovation introduced strategy and reduced the level of chaos, but they also perhaps inadvertently made football still more violent. That is, when you have athletes lining up against each other and then launching themselves at each other uh, in, in the way that <laughs> happens at a line of scrimmage, uh, there's actually the possibility for even more ferocious force, even more violence, even more injury. It's such an interesting thing to think about the way in which we can in, inadvertently cause more harm, even while we're maybe causing some good. No, I think that's right, and uh, and uh, but, but the, the Camp's reason for doing that, in part, was he wanted to really introduce strategy into the into the game, and I think he was probably thinking about, again, these Civil War generals uh, wanting to have a little bit of order there, so that they could uh, they could uh, mastermind these uh, brilliant moves and that sort of thing, and that's what Camp was really headed for. But I think you're right that it uh, probably did bring even more violence to the game. And in fact, uh, it, it, the game became so violent that even uh, President Theodore Roosevelt got involved in the conversation. and He summoned the, the uh, athletic directors of the major football colleges to the White House, and he said, in effect, Get a, you know, clean up this game because it's too violent, there are too many deaths on the football field, and uh, you need to enact some measure, measures that will provide a bit more safety for the players. We're talking with Randall Balmer about his book, Passion Plays, How Religion Shaped Sports in North America. We've already touched on the sport of ice hockey. You've already mentioned W. George Beers. I love the quote from him from 1883 that opens your chapter about hockey, in which uh, Mr. Beers is quoted as saying, Canadian sports have a character of their own. They smack more of the ungoverned and ungovernable than the games of the old world and seem to resent the imposition of regulations. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, what a great way to describe uh, the, the game of hockey, especially as it is sometimes played. Right. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and and uh, Beers was uh, very explicit. He, he, it, what, what's fascinating about this is that uh, Canada was becoming its own 
country uh, with the Canadian Confederation in 1867. It's the same year that Beers said Canadians need their own game. And he was very clear that it needed to reject cricket as to being too British and too, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, upper class and also baseball because that was uh, the game of the United States uh, from the South. We need my, our own game, he said, and lacrosse embodies that game. That is, it's, it's, it's wild and it's uh, difficult to tame. It reflects the brutality of the frontier. And when you think about even how a hockey game is played, you have these fights break out all the time, and the NHL has decided for its own reasons, I suppose, uh, not to really clamp down on it, uh, although you know, they have been able to do that at the college level. And so in the frontier justice, you think about the rural areas in, the, say, the Canadian uh, Rockies, where you, know, you have some sort of dispute on the street, and people take care of it themselves, between themselves, and only later does the authority come in and try to adjudicate matters and dispense uh, justice. Uh, hockey is like that. Uh, hockey has that uh, characteristic, it seems to me. Hmm. And you write at one point about how the professionalism of, of hockey, professionalization of hockey in North America had the paradoxical effect of democratizing the game, that it was something that many, many people uh, could play relatively inexpensive, and uh, and it uh, has, of course, reshaped and continues to be the heart and soul of Canadian identity. But in our last few minutes, uh, we should talk about the wonderful game of, base, of basketball and the fact that uh, unlike some of these other sports that sort of d- slowly emerge from other things with maybe myths surrounding their their origin stories, it's very clear who and when and why and how the game of basketball was played by one James Naismith. Some of our listeners probably know this story, but at least briefly recount it and why in some ways this is a, a story very distinct from any of the others in terms of this, the relationship of basketball uh, to religious life here in America. Sure. Uh, James Naismith Naismith was a a student at McGill University in Montreal, and then uh, he was studying for the Presbyterian ministry up there, and he was involved in athletics at McGill University, but he came down to the YMCA training school in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is now Springfield College, and uh, went through the program there and became one of the instructors, and his dean, the head of the department, Luther Gulick, challenged Naismith to come up with a new game, and the idea was to occupy young men between the football and the, and the baseball seasons. So it had to be an indoor game, had to be played in a very narrow space, and what I argue in the book is that basketball really becomes the quintessential urban game. That's not to say it's not played other places, certainly on Indian reservations, for example. It's, it's quite popular and other places, uh, but it's the quintessential urban game. And it reflects the urban experience, which is to say the idea in basketball is to maneuver within a very, very constricted space without impeding the progress of others. So the analogy I use is walking down Fifth Avenue at lunch hour or Michigan Avenue during rush hour, Times Square in the evening. 
where you have to negotiate in a, in a very small space. That's the ba- that's the game of basketball, and of course it uh, expanded because the graduates of Springfield College or the YMCA tra- training school began to fan out across North America and the world, forming YMCA chapters and bringing with them the the game of basketball that James Naismith had invented. Hmm. Naismith actually goes on from um, from uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, to become the basketball coach and the dean of the chapel at the University of Kansas. And I think that's a, a, a nice little fact because it encompasses this notion of muscular Christianity, both athleticism as well as religion. And uh, a footnote on that is that uh, James Naismith, the inventor of basketball, is only is the only basketball coach in the University of Kansas history to have a losing record. <laughs> you go on in this uh, chapter about basketball to talk about something that I had never heard of, and that is that uh, basketball entered the Olympic Games um, in 19... 19- 36, uh, those yes. famous games in Berlin, and Naismith was on hand uh, to witness that. And as a matter of fact, the man who invented basketball presented the gold medals uh, to the winning United States team. What a moment in sports history. Isn't that lovely? It really, <laughs> and, really And the, uh, the, the second place team was uh, Canada, where he was born. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it really was kind of poetic. Amazing. Well, your book goes on to explore a lot of other things, and including the ways in which ritual has such a, a place in many team sports, how they have, as we've talked about, their sacred spaces, their special vocabularies, uh, figures of authority, uh, and, uh, and, and many, many other factors that, uh, in, in, in which sports play out in ways that parallel other avenues of human life, including religious life. It's a really, really fascinating book. And again, it's titled Passion Plays, How Religion Shaped Sports in North America. It's a Ferris and Ferris book published by the University of North Carolina Press, and the author, Randall Balmer. Professor Balmer, I thank you so much, first of all, for writing this really interesting and entertaining book and for joining me today on The Morning Show. What a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. It's been a delight, Greg. Thank you so much.